Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm doing great as well. I was just thinking as you were saying the introduction, like I would have actually missed it if you changed it because it's like a weird comforting thing to me. I know. I was... I tried. I did. I tried a different intro. I tried to write a couple and they just weren't the same. So this is it. No. This is the intro forever. <laughs> oh, gosh. So we're committing to forever at this point. There's yes. just no. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm good with that. I don't yeah. like change. Change is really difficult for me. So yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. I saw a comment on Facebook on one of our posts that we had posted. Oh, you know, we had some um, issues with the episode last week and it it didn't go out right away on Apple Podcasts. And so some people didn't see it until later in the day. And so Melissa had posted just kind of a sorry, you know, we're getting it to work on it and hopefully it will be up soon thing on social media. And so people were commenting on there. But I saw one random comment on that post and somebody said that um, she missed the weather reports in our in our intro and I was like I found probably the one person who likes the The one reports yeah so um for the one person it's gonna get cold (laughs) here like in the next 24 hours or so it's supposed to be like 36 degrees tomorrow which is bizarre because it's been like 88 oh my gosh last week so yeah that's the weather that is the weather that's the state of the weather in 
Florida. <laughs> in the state of Florida. Thank you very much. Well, the other thing that I saw on that, so on the thing I signed like M&M, because I do that on email some for Melissa and Mandy, and I said something about drinking a Diet Coke while I was going to figure it out because it just was like a whole day process. And uh, people were like, oh, now I want a Diet Coke. And I was like, oh, ha, ha. And then somebody, people kept saying they wanted M&Ms. And I'm like, I don't understand why are they talking about M&Ms? It took me the entire day to figure out that they meant because I wrote from M and M. Oh, no. Talking about eating m <laughs> Like, why is everybody wanting m and I guess I do, too. <laughs> so that should probably tell you why I should not be in charge of uploading things. I can't figure out small <laughs> nuances and conversations. So... <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully everything rolls out smoothly this week, and oh, that was just lamb. that will just be a blip in the radar for us. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, so into the story this week. Everybody knows at least one power couple, which I don't know if I even like Mandy. that term. I hate the term. I hate it. <laughs> um, but I'm putting it in here for lack of a better one. <laughs> so <laughs> you have quotation. So I was like, okay, I'll accept that she put <laughs> she put this. Yeah. So you at least either know somebody like this or you know of someone like this or a couple that's like this, rather. When two people in a relationship are both really wildly successful in their own individual right, they can become the envy of those around them. These are the people who really seem to actually have it all, just the perfect life. The saying, money can't buy happiness, always kind of makes me laugh a little bit because I would joke that almost every single one of my problems could actually be solved with money. <laughs> but in reality, I know that money really isn't the happy maker that some people wish it was. And one California couple learned that the hard way in 1997, when the facade of a perfect life started crumbling apart. California attracts many people who feel drawn to the atmosphere there. And for Peggy Marshall, it was the beautiful climate and the athletic, outdoorsy lifestyle that made her want to call California home. Peggy was no stranger to warm weather. She grew up in Dexter, New Mexico with her four siblings and lived the life of a farmer's child. Mandy, did you know New Mexico gets snow? This let's hop back on the weather report for a no, minute. I just found out. I actually out didn't. I thought it was in the desert. Our friend Marcella was visiting and my daughter and her daughter are friends. And she was saying something about how cold it was. And I said, remind me what state you guys now live in. And she said, New Mexico. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, Breaking Bad lied to me because that whole area I just thought was really hot. It's not. I don't know anything about geography or weather. So oh, I. Why are, why, <laughs> why are, why we, are we the way that we are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so snowy. So it's not. I mean, I don't know about, about this part in, in particular, but it blew my mind. So ma'am facts. There you go. You've got that for today. So Peggy grew up really loving the outdoors and she was very athletic. So much so that she was considered an expert triathlete. She was a champion swimmer as a child, and in high school, she was a star athlete at Dexter High. When Peggy was in her early 20s, she started competing in annual triathlons in her hometown, and she even won several times. She went on to earn a degree in physical therapy from the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and she got her first job rehabilitating patients through a healthcare company. She was working back in her hometown of Dexter at this time, and she made a reputation for herself as being a very devoted physical therapist. She'd even continue to treat patients after they were discharged, sometimes for no cost. But after a while, Peggy started to dream bigger. She wanted to move somewhere that appealed to her interests more, which is how she settled on moving to California. Life in California was more Peggy's speed, and she looked forward to participating in all the action there. On Easter Day of 1991, 31-year-old Peggy was playing volleyball on the beach when a mutual friend introduced her to Eric Beckler. He was just 23 years old, but the two instantly connected and began dating. 
Eric was a California native. He was born in LA and he was raised in the state, but for most of his teen years, he lived along the coast. Much like Peggy, Eric was also extremely athletic. He ran track and cross country in high school. Eric started attending Northwestern University on a Marine Corps Reserve Scholarship, but he eventually dropped out because of what he called culture shock and being homesick. After leaving college, Eric moved in with his mom in Long Beach and started going to UC Irvine. He had no car, so he just rode his bike to class. Eric enjoyed spending time on the beach playing volleyball, and he was really good at it. Although Peggy and Eric really didn't seem like they would be a good match for each other, their relationship blossomed quickly, and in 1992, they got married three times. They got married at the courthouse and then on the beach in front of their friends and family, and then also at a castle in Germany. They wasted no time in starting a family. By the time they had four years of marriage under their belts, they also had three kids. Friends and family admired the Becklers and their happy marriage. They really exuded love and devotion for each other, and everybody around them could feel it and see it. In June of 1992, the couple opened a business together called Jerry Care Rehabilitation. This had really been a dream of Peggy's. She always wanted to own her own company. So she was the president, and Eric was the VP. So while they were equal partners in the business, everyone really knew that Jerry Care Rehab was Peggy's, you know, that was her baby. It was her company. That was what she always wanted. And she was really the main one in charge of that. Peggy spent her time overseeing the day-to-day operations of the business, conducted meetings, hired new staff, and controlled the company's billing. This ended up becoming a really, really successful endeavor and generated about $6 million a year in revenue. As a result of this huge success, Peggy and Eric began living a really luxurious lifestyle. They bought a home with a rooftop deck that had a sweeping view of Lido Isle, Newport Bay, and the Pacific Ocean. The house cost $795,000, which would be almost $1.5 million today. The basement of the home was converted into a disco, where Peggy and Eric would host elaborate parties. They also bought luxury cars and an SUV and wore expensive designer clothes. As part of this new lifestyle, the couple became very physically active and worked out daily to keep themselves in excellent physical shape. In the early days of Jerry Care, the employees that worked there felt like Peggy and Eric were really generous people. They would send their staff on annual ski trips, and they would throw these mandatory parties at their, you know, million-dollar home for everybody to come and enjoy themselves. So these parties were to the extreme. In one case, the Becklers had the house decorated in gold with servers that were wearing Middle Eastern-style dress, and they hired a belly dancer and other people to act as genies offering holiday cheer. I kind of want to go to a party like this. No one I know throws parties like this. <laughs> and I'm sorry, Mandy, I'm not going to be able to help you with that. This sounds <laughs> like, no, thank you. I can't imagine how out of place I would feel at this party. Like, even but it's all your I coworkers ha- and your boss. So it's like, you know, everyone that's there. But mm-hmm. yeah, like, nope. it's so um, elaborate. Um, they were the guests that were there were even served international cuisine with dishes from Morocco and North Africa on the menu. I assume that a professional chef whipped up for them. Yeah, it sounds like quite a party. Yeah, that's that's that is saying something. <laughs> so, so after a while, it became obvious that these grandiose parties weren't really about building relationships with the staff and having this you know fun together. The Becklers really just wanted to show off how wealthy they were. The parties were also a little bit crazy. 
Eric would actually drink heavily and act completely out of control. One time, he jumped onto a guest car and crashed through the sunroof. What? Yeah, that's, I mean, this is just like, I have a lot of money. I don't care what I do. Very reckless is what this all feels like. And meanwhile, I'm sure your staff is, you know, being paid, but maybe they're not making as much as you. We right. know that. So and then I do, like this. yeah. And then I also remember that Eric is in his early to mid 20s. So he's really not that oh my mature, I guess you would say. I'm not saying there's not mature 20 somethings, but yeah, uh, like a 23 year old guy, I feel like is not, they're about that life. They're about that party life. So yeah, I can just imagine how he was at these parties. Yeah. So the disco room was also a little sketchy. At least the stairs to get to the disco room were. The wall was actually lined with mirrors, which allowed people to see up dresses as they walked up the stairs, which obviously made a lot of women uncomfortable. The idea that you have a disco room, I don't know why it that makes me like, uncomfortable as it is. Yeah. Me out. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even calling it that, it can literally just be called anything else. But the second you call it the disco room, I'm like, and for that reason, I'm out. Right. <laughs> so in the early days of the business, the employees thought that Peggy was really the sweetest and the most caring boss you could ever ask for. She was really willing to do anything for them, including giving them a place to stay. One time, she actually had an employee that broke her leg and wasn't able to work, so Peggy offered her a guest home where the woman could live for free. But the employees soon learned that free didn't really mean free when it came to Peggy. Peggy wanted her to basically become her beck and call girl, sending her on errands, asking her to come to the office to babysit for her or to pick up her kids. She was asked to tutor other employees who were taking exams in the near future and more. So it was kind of like, I'm giving you all this, but, you know, help me out if I need help. And she needed a lot of help. Right. So as for Jerry Care, Eric started to lose his position within the company. It became obvious to the staff that Peggy was really pushing Eric out of the business side of things, and she would often put him in his place. So over time, it was observed that the couple was having some sort of a marital issue, and they began to argue at work behind closed doors, but everyone knew really what was going on. Some of the arguments that were overheard in the office were regarding Peggy trying to control Eric by dictating who he could be friends with and what time he could play volleyball. And so Eric was feeling like Peggy was kind of stifling him in this life that he wanted to live. He told a friend that his wife was selfish, controlling, and manipulative, and he didn't want to be with her anymore. And this couple did have their fair share of commonly faced issues within a marriage. For example, one of the big points of contention between them was that Peggy kept her money separate from Eric. And when she would give Eric money, she would call it a loan. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. So employees of Jerry Care thought that Peggy really didn't trust her own husband with financial things. And Eric was really known to be a bit frivolous with money. He once bought himself a pair of sunglasses that cost $300, which would be over $500 today, and Peggy was not happy about this. So Peggy and Eric really started to argue often, and neighbors could even hear them getting heated. In the summer of 1996, things got much worse for Peggy and Eric's marriage. On two different occasions, police were actually called to their home due to arguments. Around the same time, Eric told his friend Kobe that he couldn't stand his life anymore and felt that he had to get out of the marriage and had to get away from Peggy. Kobe and his wife had conversations with Eric about divorcing Peggy, but Eric was resistant to the idea because he didn't want to lose the money and, of course, his kids. Eric also expressed concern that Peggy would try to divorce him and then take their kids to New Mexico to live with her family. He thought there was a real possibility that he would never see his children again, you know, if he were to split from Peggy. Right. 
Eric eventually devised a plan to make sure that Peggy was portrayed as an unfit parent so that she wouldn't be able to get custody of the kids in an in eventual divorce. So he would videotape her using drugs, which, of course, he wanted as evidence to use against her later. In July of 1996, Peggy was pregnant and things were falling apart across the board. Money was becoming an even bigger issue as Jerry Care began having problems and the well was running dry within the company. A lot of the company's assets were transferred directly to the Beckler's personal accounts and had since been spent on two mortgages on their house, a new Porsche, expensive vacations, and much more. Peggy was desperate to conserve funds, so she stopped contributing to 10 of her employees' retirement funds. And when the employees realized what happened and reported her to the IRS, Peggy was ordered to pay back all the money. So she's like really scrambling, trying to figure out, you know, what is she going to do? She had the idea that she could cut the salaries of the employees, but Eric actually talked her out of doing that and said, you know, no, you, you can't do that. So in August of that year, Eric and Peggy actually found an out when they were able to sell Jerry Care to another company named American Retirement Villas, or ARV. This company was looking to expand their retirement services kind of into the rehabilitation arena, and they thought that Jerry Care was a great acquisition for them because the company looked like it was doing really well financially on paper. They really had no idea that all of it was a complete farce and that Peggy had actually been committing fraud to make it look like the company was doing better than it really was. Yeah. So they eventually, of course, once they get in there, you know, they've, you know, acquired the company. So once they get in there, they start finding out what the truth of the matter is. And multiple employees at Jerry Care told the new company, you know, what had happened with their paychecks and how the Becklers had been spending company money on their personal debts. And so ARV began investigating Peggy's billing and spending practices. And from there, things began to take a really unfortunate turn for her and her husband, Eric. After the investigation proved that they were guilty of fraudulent practices, both Peggy and Eric were fired from the company, losing their salaries and earning themselves a legal investigation into Medicare fraud. The consequences for this were really dire for Peggy. Her license, of course, is on the line at this point. The new company ended up having to pay out $1.6 million to clean up the mess that was made by the Becklers and get the company in good standing again. Can you imagine they like come in to take over this company and realize, oh my gosh, this is an absolute disaster, not at all what they said. And Peggy, they have to be terrified too. Yeah. This is, ooh, I also can't this imagine is- like starting up a company and then losing control of it and then literally getting fired from the company that you created. Like that, right. all of that is just so much. Yeah. Oof. So after losing their jobs, Peggy and Eric were under immense stress on top of their already existing marital problems. A friend of Peggy said that she would cry about her failing marriage to Eric every time the two hung out together. Meanwhile, Eric's line of thinking was heading in a more sinister direction. One day, after he was playing volleyball with his friend Kobe, he asked him what he thought about the possibility of killing his wife. Kobe asked him, you know, hey, are things really that bad? And Eric said yes. They discussed it further, and Eric admitted that he had already thought of a plan that involved taking Peggy out to sea and dumping her in the ocean, possibly in a barrel. This is, you've you've put some time thinking, right? you know, put some thinking into this if you're coming up with actual scenarios. That's a very specific plan, yeah. Yeah. 
So Kobe asked Eric if he would be able to put on the act of a distraught husband who just lost his wife, and Eric said that he thought he'd be able to. Kobe then told Eric he never wanted to talk about this again, and the two never did. On July 6, 1997, Eric and Peggy were going to celebrate their recent wedding anniversary. They've been married five years, and Eric planned a day on the water. He had already called and made arrangements to rent a boat that day. Which also, this is a lot of pressure and time and things going into a five-year marriage. This is, yeah, that is a pressure cooker of epic proportions. Oh, yeah. So he planned to take Peggy out on the ocean off the coast of Newport Beach in California. Peggy really loved to surprise people, and Eric claimed he wanted to do something special for her that day. So at around noon, they set out on their rented boat, which was a 19-foot speedboat named Sea Swirl, and they headed out on the water. This was the last time they were both seen together. At around 3.30 that afternoon, a fellow boater was out sailing with his family and friends on what was a pretty calm day on the water. There were light waves and swells, but nothing really major. But about four miles offshore, the sailor, who was named Gary Green, spotted a man in distress clinging to a boogie board while a nearby motorboat drove in circles at a high rate of speed. As Gary approached the man in the water, he could hear him screaming, My wife! My wife! It was Eric Beckler, and he was screaming that Peggy had fallen out of the boat. So Gary threw Eric a life jacket and tried to help calm him down while they called the Coast Guard. While they waited for the Coast Guard to arrive, which took about 45 minutes, Eric just hung onto the boogie board and stared into space without saying a word. Sheriff's deputies came to the scene and pulled Eric onto their boat. He told them who he was and said that his wife had fallen overboard and he couldn't find her. He said that he and Peggy had rented this boat to celebrate their wedding anniversary and they had been drinking margaritas, eating snacks, and sunbathing all day. He told them that Peggy had been driving the boat back to shore while he was riding the boogie board behind the boat, but then they hit a wave and he fell off and went underwater. He said that when he came back up, he couldn't see Peggy on the boat anymore. She had been sitting on the top of the back part of the driver's seat, but now he said that she was gone. He told them that she wasn't wearing a life jacket and she just vanished into the ocean. The water depth where they were at this point was about a thousand feet deep. The boat, which was now completely unmanned, was driving itself in circles and Eric said he couldn't catch up to it. So the officers called for more emergency vessels to come help in the search for missing Peggy. They searched for about two hours with boats and a helicopter, and during the whole search, Eric appeared to be crying, but he was lacking any tears. He asked the investigators if anybody had checked on shore, because Peggy was an excellent swimmer, and the ocean conditions were pretty calm, so he thought maybe there was a chance that she actually just was able to swim to shore. The officers were not able to find Peggy in the search that evening, and later searches were also unsuccessful. Peggy Beckler has never been seen or heard from since that day. Officials were able to stop the unmanned boat and inspect it. The inside of the boat was neat with no wrappers or chips or crumbs anywhere, and they thought that was pretty odd for two people who supposedly have just spent the day drinking and snacking on this boat. The search continued that night, and Eric was taken back to shore with the rental boat towed along behind him. When Eric arrived on shore, there were already media personnel present and waiting on the dock. Although Eric had spent the ride back being totally quiet and calm, as soon as he saw the media, he became upset and started acting like he couldn't even walk. At this point, the Coast Guard was pretty suspicious of his story. It just really didn't add up. 
How could they have hit such a strong wave when the waters were really calm that day? And how likely is it that Peggy, who was a triathlete, would just drown immediately upon being thrown from this boat and not even attempt to swim her way to safety? Later, they question why Peggy's body wouldn't have resurfaced if she had drowned in an accident. The whole thing seemed really fishy, but investigators had nothing to charge Eric with, so they just had to keep investigating and remind the public about the dangers of drinking while boating and not wearing a life jacket. When Peggy's mom heard about the accident, however, she immediately believed that her son-in-law, Eric, had something to do with her daughter's death. And we're going to get into so much more to this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. As moms, we know how important it is to give your kids healthy meals, but that's easier said than done. Until now. With Little Spoon, you can get back to loving on your little one while having healthy and easy mealtime and snack time for your baby, toddler, and big kid delivered right to your door. Little Spoon is the one-stop shop for healthy and easy mealtime and snack time at every stage, which can save you hours a week. Plus, it's reasonably priced. And we know so much is processed in the grocery store, but Little Spoon makes everything fresh and nothing they use is artificial. It's just like homemade, except you aren't spending hours making it like I did when my kids were little. Plus, it's all delivered to your door and ready in seconds. You just pop your meals in the fridge or freezer and use them when you're ready. Sometimes when I hear the word nutritious, I think not delicious, but Little Spoon is actually incredible. All of the recipes are delicious plus nutritionally balanced and free of junk, which helps set your little one up for a lifetime of health. I've loved everything I've tried, including the chicken super nuggets, which included chicken and vegetable patties with sweet potato carrot poppers and broccoli. Little Spoon is food you can feel good about giving your kid that they'll actually enjoy as much as you. And their smoothies are legit. And while we don't have any babies in our homes anymore, I ended up giving some of my smoothies to my niece to try and she is obsessed with them, especially the tahini banana bread flavor. I mean, the girl has good taste. Best part? The price is right, with kids meals under $5 and baby food and smoothie snacks under $3. It makes trying Little Spoon easy. Start the new year fresh with Little Spoon. Get 50% off your first order with the code MURDER at checkout. This is a podcast exclusive deal. Enter code MURDER at checkout to get 50% off your first Little Spoon order. We are coming up on our fifth show anniversary this year. And while we've grown so much over the years, one thing that's really helped in that growth and that we've had by our side since almost the very beginning is stamps.com. Stamps.com is truly the best way I can save time in our business. This week, I sent out Patreon perks and all of our tax stuff from the comfort of my bed. With Stamps.com, I'm skipping the lines at the post office and saving time, which saves money. But Stamps.com can save you real cold, hard cash, like discounts that you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Whether you're running an Etsy shop, a full-blown warehouse, or even your very own podcast, Stamps.com will make your life so much easier. And if the idea of figuring out postage makes you nervous like it did me, don't worry. Stamps.com helps you figure it out and lets you print official U.S. postage and gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services right from your computer and printer. That's right. No fancy equipment is needed. Stop overpaying for shipping with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code MOMSANDMURDER for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MOMSANDMURDER. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? 
Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, Eric is back to shore. He's seen the media personnel, and he's starting to act like a totally different person that he's just kind of panicked and you know freaking out, almost putting on a show. And the Coast Guards take notice of this. Coast Guard special agents were ready and anxious to speak with Eric the morning after the accident, so they went to his house. Eric explained that he and Peggy had first set out towards Catalina Island, but they ended up stopping because it was too hazy. Peggy was driving at this time, and he said he was on the boogie board, until that wave came that knocked him off the board and sent Peggy flying into the water. The agents also examined the boat and found that it was impeccably clean, with no trash or visible dirt on it. There was one towel that was laid out in front of the motor, two duffel bags, a cooler that had a canteen that was half full of margarita mix, a pair of sunglasses on the seat, and a backpack. And there was really nothing noteworthy in these duffel bags, just snacks, toiletries, and clothing. Eric's backpack did have a couple of questionable items inside of it, such as black plastic bags and a 44-foot rope. There was no signs of blood on the boat or any of the items that they found on it. But on July 8th, a crime scene investigators found something more. There were actually several small drops of blood on the right rear part of the boat. Eric was called into the station to speak with investigators again, but he maintained his original story that he had just been drinking margaritas and eating snacks before he decided to ride on the boogie board being towed behind the boat. He said he could barely see Peggy when she was driving because of the sea spray in his face. And he insisted that he fell off the board, and when he came back up, Peggy was gone, and this boat was just going in circles. He said it was about 15 to 30 minutes before Gary Green showed up on a sailboat to call for help. A beachside memorial was held for Peggy, where about 100 people were in attendance. Eric and Peggy's family tossed rose petals into the ocean, while a flutist played in the background. 
During the memorial, Eric held his nine-month-old daughter and appeared to be fighting back tears. But the Coast Guard wasn't through investigating this bizarre and suspicious case just yet. They wanted to conduct their own sea trials to see if Eric's story was even possible. Of course, it's a known fact that you can't recreate the exact conditions present on the day of the accident. It's the ocean. You're never going to get it to do the same thing twice. But the trials were set up to account for various factors, like where Peggy may have been sitting on the boat, how fast she was going, and how she may have maneuvered the steering wheel. Two agents went out on the open water in the same boat that had been rented by Eric that day. The conditions on the day they did the trial were about the same as the day of the accident just small swells, but not too rough. They tried every possible way of driving the boat. They tried different throttle levels, different sitting and standing positions. They tried steering with both hands, steering with one hand, not having any hands on the wheel. And they tried driving on one foot. They drove over their own wake and just generally tried to make somebody fall out of the boat. There was only one instance when one of the agents slipped back into the seat, but in all of the other scenarios and trials, it didn't matter what any of the other factors were, neither the driver nor the passenger lost their balance and nearly fell overboard. Furthermore, Eric's claim that Peggy had been sitting on top of the backrest of the driver's seat didn't make any sense. The officers that did the trials actually tried that too, and they couldn't even reach the wheel. So they said that it would be really difficult, if not impossible, for anybody to have been driving the boat in that position, you know, sitting like that. The owner of the boat rental place where the boat came from agreed that the accident couldn't have happened the way Eric claimed it did. In light of these findings, the Coast Guard recommended that the Orange County police take over the investigation because they found it unlikely that Peggy was thrown from the boat never to be seen again. In other words, they believe that there was foul play involved and that her disappearance needed to be investigated as a homicide. And that's exactly what the sheriff's department did. Eric was interviewed by Orange County sheriffs on July 12th. They wanted to know more details about this boat accident as well as what the Beckler marriage was like. While speaking to the officers, Eric actually added some peculiar details to his story. He said that he and Peggy actually had sex on the boat that afternoon, and when they were finished, he noticed some drops or splotches of blood on the cushions in front of the boat. He also said he saw blood in the back of the boat, and he told investigators he thought Peggy may have been on her period. And as for their marriage, according to Eric, it was blissful. He said they were so happy, and they had a wonderful, strong marriage, and that they rarely even fought. But despite this whole perfect husband act, Eric was looking more and more suspicious than more investigators learned about him. Eric really had a lot of motives to kill Peggy, according to what they found out from those who knew the couple. Friends, co-workers, and neighbors all really said the same thing. The Becklers did not have a harmonious marriage whatsoever. They fought a lot and even had the police call to their home in the last year. That's what doesn't make sense to me if he's saying everything's so great. Like, there are records that right. police have been to your house over arguing. Why would you try to hide that? That's a very easy easy search for them. So several people that police spoke to said Eric had not been acting like a grieving husband since Peggy's demise. One of Peggy's friends said Eric only seemed upset when he was around Peggy's family, but otherwise he really seemed happier than ever. Eric's friend Kobe's wife, Tammy, said that when Peggy's family would come around, Eric acted serious, but once they were gone, he was smiling and he was happy. Even the family babysitter said the only time she ever saw Eric crying was when other people were around. Of course, it wasn't hard for the investigators to figure out that Eric and Peggy were also having significant financial problems. They also learned that they had $2.6 million life insurance policies, which begged the question, 
did Eric murder his wife for the money? When they found out that the couple was also in the process of being investigated for fraud, they thought that Eric could have killed Peggy knowing that the investigation into the fraud would fizzle out without Peggy alive. Strangely, it was learned that Peggy's brother had actually disappeared in a very similar manner. He was on active duty with the Coast Guard when he was in a boating accident in Alaska, and his body was never found. So the investigators wondered whether Eric had gotten the idea for Peggy's murder from this incident that happened with her brother. So messed up, and so yeah. messed up for her parents, who've yes. already been through such a terrible thing to basically put make them, them through this it. again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On July the 14th, the boat was examined by forensic experts who found blood underneath a seat cushion. The whole boat was then sprayed with luminol, and the whole area in front of the motor mount lit up, indicating that there had been blood there at one point. But unfortunately, they were not able to recover DNA from the small samples that they had. At some point during the investigation, Eric's friend Kobe decided to speak up about what he knew. He told them about that conversation they had where Eric indicated that he was seriously considering murdering Peggy. Kobe was asked to wear a wire to go speak with Eric, which he did agree to do. But during their conversation, when Kobe asked Eric if he played any role in his wife's death, Eric said no. There really wasn't enough evidence still to charge Eric with murder, so the case kind of went quiet for a while. In October of 1997, Eric had pretty much moved on from the whole thing, and he decided to try his hand at love once again. He met 27-year-old Tina New at a trade fair. One of Eric's friends had hired her to work as a model in his booth. Tina was an actress who appeared on Baywatch Nights, Married with Children, and more. She was also a nude model and a bikini contest winner. Tina was also on two episodes of Mr. Show in 1997, and I will tell you, that is the most impressive part of her uh, resume. Mr. Show with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, this is for three people out there that know what it is. That's such a great show. Like, that is a cool thing to have on your resume. Our wonderful researcher, Haley, wrote in the research that she sent me specifically to make sure I included that fact in the episode (laughs) just for you, and I didn't even, I was like, okay, I'll put it in here, I guess, but... (laughs) Yeah, she's she knows me well. That's that's hilarious. Yeah, it's a great show. Um, so Eric asked Tina on a date and she said yes. They went to dinner and he told Tina that his wife had died in an accident, leaving him alone with three kids. Tina really felt sorry for him and she didn't think he was guilty of anything. He started crying and Tina ended up staying the night with him. Eric then spun up this story about how he couldn't imagine raising his three little kids alone and that his kids needed a mother. Tina, who actually had two kids of her own, thought this would be a great opportunity to create a blended family. So she eventually moved in with Eric into the home that he once shared with Peggy. Eric and Peggy's kids actually only lived with Eric part-time. The rest of the time, they lived with Peggy's parents in New Mexico. When Eric didn't have the kids, he was taking Tina on these luxury cruises. They actually went on three cruises within the first three to four months of dating. Wow. It feels very bachelor-esque, right? Yeah, like definitely. we're like all these grandiosos, but that's not really real life for most people. No. And so Tina also said that Eric made her feel special, quote, like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, end quote. But then Eric did something that Tina was really put off by, and things continued to spiral downward from there. Not long after Tina moved in, Eric actually gave up custody of his three kids and sent them to live with Peggy's parents full time. Which has to be so confusing to Tina because he's saying, I want a mother for my kids. She's moved in. They have this blended family. And now he's like, actually, they're going to stay there. Like, 
it's kind of like the whole thing he imagined up for them or, you know, like sold her and she bought into wasn't really true. That's not what he really wanted. No. And like it makes me so sad for the kids too because they have lost their mom and now Mm -hmm. their dad is like, okay, go live with grandma and grandpa. It's like for them and their poor little brains, like I can't imagine what they have to be, how children would perceive that. Like that's just heartbreaking to me to think of, of them, the kids having to go through that. Yeah, and even though it definitely seems like that was the best option and a good place for them to be, just like you're saying, they lost their mom and now how would they perceive it? But losing their dad really too. So later, one of these children ended up going to live with Peggy's sister and the other two stayed with the grandparents. Eric also tried to gain control of Peggy's estate, which was worth about $450,000 in cash and stocks. Her parents, though, got a lawyer to fight Eric, which resulted in a judge appointing a third-party conservator over the estate until everything had been through the proper legal channels. Eric applied to get a payout from Peggy's life insurance policy, but they refused to pay him until the case was closed. So what started off as a fairy tale romance with Eric quickly turned into a source of uncertainty for Tina. According to Tina, Eric didn't appear to be mourning the loss of his wife at all, which at first she just chalked up to being his coping mechanism. But then she noticed that when Eric would even call to speak to his kids, he acted cold towards them. And he was constantly just really preoccupied with asking Peggy's family about money. Even though this was turning into a volatile and toxic relationship, Tina loved Eric anyway, and they talked about one day getting married. About 18 months after Tina and Eric first started dating, they got into an argument and Eric pushed her. The police were called and he ended up pleading guilty to a domestic violence charge. He was sentenced to probation and ordered to go to counseling as well as to stay away from Tina. But despite the orders to cease contact, Tina and Eric continued to see each other. Tina, as I said, was in love and she didn't want to be without Eric, but she did move into her own apartment. One day in the fall of 1999, while Tina was over at Eric's house, she put in an old videotape that she found and an old news report about Peggy's death started playing. So Eric was taken off guard and caught, you know, caught by surprise by this and his jaw kind of dropped and he asked Tina where she got the tape from and his demeanor changed immediately and Tina said that he just went quiet. So Tina continued listening as the report went on to talk about how strange it was that the water had been so calm the day of the accident, but that Peggy had somehow fallen out of the boat and died. Tina then realized at that moment that Eric had lied to her about what happened to his wife. He told her that the water was rough and choppy that day, and she kind of immediately got this sense that Eric had lied to her about other things too. Eric refused to have any conversation with her about it that night. At some point, Eric told Tina that he was finally ready to tell her what happened for real. He told her that he and Peggy had some cocktails and had sex before he saw her fall overboard. He said that he decided not to help her because he knew she was going to leave him and take their kids with her. Tina actually believed that this was the real truth, and she tried to convince herself that Eric had let Peggy die out of a love for his children, but that didn't really make a lot of sense now either. She knew that he still wasn't telling the whole truth. In mid-October of 1999, Tina and Eric went out to a nightclub and drank and took ecstasy. After they got home, Tina begged Eric to be honest with her about what really happened that day on the boat. She said, quote, you hit her. Eric reacted with shock and said, how did you know that? Can you even imagine hearing that response? No. <laughs> you know, no. Not the response you want to hear. 
No, not at all. So for the next three hours, Eric told Tina the real story. Eric said that he'd been planning the murder for a long time and really had thought everything through. He booked this boating trip several days in advance and made sure to plant little seeds of his innocence along the way. Shortly before the boating trip, Eric and Peggy held a party with over 200 people in attendance and Eric said he made sure he was extra lovey-dovey with Peggy so no one would suspect him of her eventual murder. Eric even spent time putting together a kit for the murder. It was a bag that included a tow rope, two 35-pound dumbbells, and trash bags. He left all these items along with the boogie board at a second dock where they stopped at later. The company that rented the boat to Eric didn't allow any ropes or towing, so Eric had to hide that stuff when they picked up the boat. Eric said he drove the boat about 12 miles offshore, and while Peggy was sunbathing, he walked up behind her and hit her over the head, quote, so hard that she didn't feel a thing, end quote. Eric said there was blood everywhere. He described how he folded her body in half, tied her hands and feet together, covered her body with a garbage bag, and then used the weights to sink her body in the ocean. Oh my gosh. This is, uh, in the words of uh, Keith Morrison, diabolical. This is yeah, beyond anything you'd think. This isn't a, I, I got upset on the boat and hit her and this happened. This is setting up spots to stop on your boat. Just this is all planned out so well, more than just about any murder we've ever talked about that's been premeditated. I've never seen anybody do all this. Eric then washed the boat out and he drove backwards towards the shore, stopping about four miles out. That's when he decided to jump off the back of the boat with a boogie board and let the boat drag him around until he was finally found. Eric said he really had to put on his best acting skills in order to seem genuinely panicked. Tina asked whether or not anyone would ever find Peggy's body, and Eric said no. He said her body would never float to the surface because she had low body fat and he anchored her with 70 pounds of weight. And there is still more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I'm a creature of habit, so it should come as no surprise that I've used the same mascara for over five years. But I wanted to see what all the fuss was about and tried Thrive's Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. I knew it was their best-selling product and it has more than 20,000 five-star reviews, so I figured I'd like it, but I didn't think I was going to ditch my old stuff. And well, let's just say I had a change of heart. Not only is it ultra-lengthening, eye-opening mascara, it truly lasts all day long without clumping or smudging or flaking, and not only does it look amazing, it comes off so easy, and sure, that makes me sound lazy, but I am okay with that. Thrive also makes the overnight sensation brightening sleep mask, and it's truly incredible. If you're looking for radiant skin, it's just a night's sleep away, thanks to this cooling and brightening face mask. What I love is that it uses a potent skin-loving formula that not only restores your skin, but hydrates and rejuvenates all while you sleep. Now that I've tried it, I'm not sure how I ever lived without it. And if you're looking for a way to give back, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is a great way to do that. For every product you purchase, Thrive will donate to help women thrive. This includes donations to women emerging from homelessness, surviving domestic abuse, and more. One thing that really stood out to me was when I saw that in 2020, Thrive was able to donate over $100,000 to their giving partner, baby to baby whose mission is to help families facing poverty to receive basic necessities that they need for their babies like diapers, clothing, cribs, and more. Now is a great time to try Thrive Cosmetics for yourself. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com slash moms. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash moms for 15% off your first order. 
Our dogs are a part of our family, and sure, they can't help us with chores, but they also don't give us any attitude, so I think the trade-off is just fine. But if you're looking for a way to learn more about your dog so you can be proactive with their health, check out Embark. We both got the Embark DNA test for purebred dogs and the Breed and Health Kit. As a pet owner, it gives incredible insight into your dog's health. I talked a little about the genetic health condition my dog Remy is a carrier for last time, but it's not really that strange that he has a carrier. In fact, 75% of dogs are at risk or a carrier for a genetic health condition. Beyond what their breed could have, this is specific to your furry friend because it's their DNA. I was able to forward the information on to Remy's vet so we could be proactive with Remy's care. Mandy, you got your results back on Lila as well. Did anything really jump out to you? I did. I had done my research already on GSP dogs before I brought Lila home, but Embark gave me so much more. Thankfully, her results showed that she was not at risk for any of the genetic conditions they tested for, and I learned a little about her genetic diversity. In other words, how closely related her parents were. Her coefficient of inbreeding is just 8%, which means that she won't be susceptible to issues that dogs with less genetic diversity are at risk of. And using Embark couldn't be easier. I simply swabbed the inside of Lila's mouth, sent the swab in the prepaid envelope provided by Embark back to them, and within a few days, I received an email letting me know the lab had received it. Embark offers the most scientifically advanced dog DNA test. Their test analyzes more than 230,000 genetic markers. That's over twice as much genetic data than the competition. Right now, Embark has a limited time offer on their breed and health kit and purebred kit for our listeners. Go to EmbarkVet.com to get free shipping and save $50 with promo code MOMS. Visit EmbarkVet.com and use promo code MOMS to save $50 today. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how Eric Beckler had just really confessed to what really happened the day on the boat that his wife went missing. After hearing Eric's confession, Tina was understandably horrified, and she was worried for her own life at this point because Eric had confessed to murdering Peggy. Yeah. Eric became super paranoid and clingy after he told Tina about all of this, and he never wanted Tina to leave his side. He would call her constantly if they were apart from each other and just seemed really anxious. In late October, Tina was at the end of her rope with it all, so she decided to call Peggy's parents and let them know what Eric had told her. They asked her to call the police right away and report it, but she didn't. Not right then. Later that same night, Eric showed up at Tina's house with alcohol and a huge duffel bag, which Tina thought was intended for her own body to be placed in. She was sure that Eric had decided to kill her too now that she knew too much. So they started arguing and it got to the point where a neighbor called the police. But when they got there, Eric fled out of the back. He, of course, was in violation of his parole by even being around Tina. So he took off to avoid being arrested. He was gone by the time the police even showed up. Tina told the officers everything that she knew, and they were absolutely stunned. This was the first break in the case in two years. So they asked if Tina would allow them to uh, tap her phone, and she agreed. On October the 29th, Tina and Eric talked on the phone. Tina pretended that everything was okay and even agreed to meet him for dinner later that night. Investigators listened as Eric told Tina he was thinking about leaving the state and asked her not to speak to the police. Tina asked Eric if he had told his attorney, quote, what really happened. And Eric said, quote, no, it was an accident. It was an accident. That's what really happened, end quote. Tina then asked if his attorney knew the truth. And Eric also said no. And Tina replied with, well, maybe you should tell your attorney the truth because you need someone to know. Investigators asked if Tina would wear a wire to the dinner with Eric that night, and she obliged. 
The goal, of course, was to get Eric to repeat the same story that he told her a couple weeks back. So they met at a Mexican restaurant called El Torito, where they ate burritos and drank margaritas while a detective sat close by. Eric told Tina he was scared of going to jail, so his plan was to get a fake identity and get out of the state. Tina told Eric that she was concerned about not having her story straight in case she were to be called to testify one day. She wanted him to explain what happened one more time. But Eric just kept confusing the situation. Eric told her that she didn't need to be concerned about any details. Just tell the court that she didn't remember anything. Tina said, you know, I'm not really a liar and I'm not good at it and I don't want to lie. Uh, But Eric told her, simply just say that they never discussed anything about Peggy's death and go from there. Tina still had a few more questions for Eric. She wanted to know how he could hit his wife over the head and Eric just said that he had to get rid of her because she was super controlling and because of the kids. After the dinner, Tina was going back to her apartment after she dropped Eric off at home. But he insisted on driving. Tina was absolutely terrified during this car ride, as you'd imagine, and ended up begging Eric to pull over. He refused, so she started screaming and yanking at the steering wheel until he finally stopped the car. They both got out of the car, and Tina got into the driver's seat and took off, leaving Eric standing on the side of the road. But don't worry, Eric wasn't stranded for too long. Officers pulled up a few moments later and placed Eric under arrest. When they later searched through his things, authorities found that Eric's dumbbell weight set was missing the pair of 35-pound weights. Eric claimed the weight set had always been missing those two. Sure, bud. On November 1st, Eric was finally charged with Peggy's murder. He hired an experienced criminal defense attorney named John Barnett, who was famous for being the attorney who represented Theodore Brezina, the LAPD officer who was acquitted in the brutal beating of Rodney King. One of Barnett's first clients whenever he began private practice was the serial killer Rodney Alcala, the infamous dating game killer. A few days after Eric's arrest, he convinced Tina to go with his mother to a motel so they could be kept away from the police and the media. Tina was actually feeling guilty about her part in the arrest, so she agreed to go. So when she goes to the hotel, Eric's mother tells Tina that she better get her story straight. The next morning, Eric's mom said that she and Eric had worked out a strategy on what they should do. First, she took Tina to visit Eric in jail, where they used notes to communicate. Eric told his mom to keep Tina with her at all times and to keep her from speaking to police. So even Eric's able to control Tina from inside the jail. Right. And so he asked Tina to lie and say she'd been on drugs and made the whole thing up whenever she told police that he had killed his wife. That's asking a lot of someone. Right. Well, it's also like, hey, I want you to look bad. So right, like, you lose not credibility. only do I want you to lie, but I also want you to like light yourself on fire in the process. Like what? Yeah. Why? Like I would never. No. And so he told her to say that she did that because she was upset with him for cheating on her. Tina said she didn't want to do this. She didn't want to lie. But Eric passed a note back that said if she didn't do it, he would never get out of jail, which at that point she's got to be like, oh, thank good. Goodness, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. That's not what you should have told me, bud. Right. <laughs> So next, Eric's mom took Tina to meet with Eric's attorney and investigator. They wanted Tina to officially recant her story. She met privately with the attorney and the investigator, and she actually did it. She recanted. Tina was then taken to an attorney that Eric's mom hired to represent her, and she told this attorney that she felt she could not speak with him honestly because since, you know, Eric's mom's paying for these fees, she kind of feels like the confidentiality may not be, you know, exactly what she would prefer. 
So the attorney told Tina that, you know, the communications were confidential and that she could be totally honest. So then Tina told this attorney the original story that Eric gave her on October 16th and then told him about the story that Eric just told her to use. Uh, She told the attorney about everything that had been going on. So finally, according to the plan, Tina changed her story and told the press that on October 16th, she was under the influence of methamphetamine and was having psychic visions and that she made up the story about Eric killing his wife and prodded him into agreeing with her story. Tina told the press that she believed Eric was innocent. She later testified that what she told the press was all a lie. In February 2000, a second sea trial was conducted by Orange County Sheriff's deputies, and they took the boat to the area where the officers originally found Eric on July 6th, and the ocean conditions were about the same um, as they were on the day of the murder. Just like the first trials, this one showed that steering the boat while sitting on top of the back of the driver's seat was either difficult or impossible, and they pretty much had the same results as the first sea trials. Eric finally went to trial on December 7th, 2000. Prosecutors said that Peggy's death was no accident and that she was murdered by her husband, Eric. They said he bludgeoned her to death on the boat, weighted her down, threw her body overboard, and then spent time cleaning up the crime scene and staging it to look like an accident. There was no physical evidence tying him to the crime, so the prosecution focused on the circumstantial evidence and the witness testimony. Eric's friend Kobe and, of course, Tina were the star witnesses. Attorneys laid out the many motives that Eric would have had to kill Peggy. He was unhappy in the marriage, always complained about Peggy to his friends, and the financial burdens were becoming huge. They said Eric had gone from rags to riches whenever he got with Peggy and that he thought he would inherit this $2.6 million when she was gone and that the Medicare fraud investigation would go away. Prosecutors told the jury how scientifically unlikely it was that Peggy had fallen out of the boat. They talked about the sea trials they conducted, but they weren't allowed to give any official expert opinion on whether or not Peggy specifically fell out of the boat. The jurors had to listen to the results of the trials and decide for themselves what they thought, which I think is really interesting. Normally you have experts on there to give their expert opinion and they're like, just listen. It was also brought up that Eric seemed like he was faking bereavement and he jumped into a relationship with Tina just months after the accident. The two dumbbells missing from Eric's weight set also supported the allegation that he had used them to weigh Peggy's body down. And finally, they talked about how suspicious it was that Eric and his mother had both tried to persuade Tina to change her story. When it was time for the defense to speak, their angle was that Peggy died in a freak accident and nothing more. They also asked how prosecutors could even prove that she'd been murdered when they didn't have her body. They claimed that the sea trials that were conducted were totally unreliable and that the officers who conducted them were focused on what they were doing and they were compensating for the risk of slipping and falling, whereas Peggy was not doing that, but instead she had been sunbathing and partying and not consciously trying to maintain her balance, which I personally, I will say, I think Eric obviously is guilty of of murdering his wife in this case, but I can see where the defense is going here because if you've ever been on a boat, you kind of understand this concept that when you are, when you know the water is rough and choppy and you're actually, or you're, you know, driving around fast and purposely making the boat do crazy things, you're, you're tensing up your body and you're trying to make it, make sure you do not fall over in a case where you're not expecting a wave or a bump or something happens and you're just relaxed and hanging out and not really paying attention. I can see how you would be more likely to suffer a fall or something like that because you're yeah. not you're not consciously trying to avoid falling. Yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So they also noted that the officers were sober at the time of the trials, and that wasn't quite the same thing as Peggy and Eric being on the boat drinking margaritas. The officers also weren't the same physical size as Peggy, who was 5'5 and 130 pounds. I wonder why they didn't bring somebody out there that size, because that does make, I would think that would make a huge difference. Yeah. The defense said that Tina was untrustworthy because she had recently been convicted of impersonating a woman in order to withdraw money from the woman's account. Tina also allegedly claimed to have psychic powers and had recently sued Dennis Rodman after accusing him of rape. And although Rodman actually denied knowing Tina at all, he did settle with her for $225,000. So I don't really know what happened there. The DA actually did not press charges against him due to lack of evidence of any crime. So they said that the things Eric told Tina while she was wearing the wire were just lies because he wanted to impress her. And they made Tina out to just be a woman with a wild side and this penchant for bad boys. What? Yeah. Yeah. Murder? Come on. (laughs) I don't think that's what people mean when they mean bad boys. They might mean like a mustache. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Drives a motorcycle. (laughs) So Eric testified at the trial and admitted that he and Peggy had been having financial problems since March of 1997. He also admitted that they did argue quite frequently. He said that he had discussed some terrible ideas with his friend Kobe, but he didn't mean that he was literally going to do them. He just wanted to show how frustrated he was with the situation. So Eric also denied killing his wife and told the story of what happened that day to the jury. He said that night he and Tina took ecstasy and he confessed, but this wasn't really a confession. This was just because Tina was having one of her psychic visions and that she came up with the whole scenario in her own head and ran with it as if it were the truth. Eric testified that basically he was just trying to keep Tina under control because she was ruining his life with her, quote, drug-induced fantasy. And, you know, he never really killed Peggy, but Tina seemed certainly convinced that he did. So he felt that he had no choice but to appease her and agree with her and tell her that she was right. Again, no. There's no scenario that would ever make me agree that I killed somebody like when I did, you know, like that's just crazy talk. So in February of 2001, the jury of seven women and five men began their deliberations. According to the LA Times, the deliberations were highly emotional. Jurors were occasionally uh, leaving in tears and they were getting in heated arguments with each other. One of the jurors told the Times that, quote, people didn't sleep at night because it was so intense, end quote. The defense believed in Eric's innocence so much that they didn't want any lesser charges to be considered by the jury. It was either find him guilty of first-degree murder or acquit him. The jury couldn't consider second-degree murder, manslaughter, or any lesser charges, which I think is insane that the defense is the one who said that. Like, it's either all or nothing. Like, it's either guilty of first-degree or innocent. Like, totally. Like, they – I would not be okay with my attorney setting me up for that. Like, give me at least another option. You know, like, what What if? That's what they did with the Casey Anthony case and why she was acquitted. The jury could have found something else, right. you know, second degree or whatever. But because it was first degree or nothing, I can. it can be a good risk. There's no body, you know. Right. It's true. Yeah, that's true. So after six days of deliberating, the jurors were deadlocked. Nine of them voted guilty and three weren't sure. The thing that was hanging them up was that the prosecution said that Eric bludgeoned Peggy on the boat, yet there was very little blood on the boat, and none of it could even be matched to Peggy because they couldn't get DNA from it. To help make their final decision, the jury asked if they could listen to the secretly recorded conversation that Tina made while wearing the wire on October 29th at dinner. Listening to this again showed the jurors that Eric never at any point denied killing Peggy. 
One juror told the LA Times, quote, he had lots of opportunities to deny it, but he never did. He was basically saying it without saying it, end quote. Wow. After deliberating for seven days, the jury found Eric guilty of first-degree murder with the special circumstance of murder while lying in wait. They did not find him guilty of the special circumstances of murder for financial gain. Eric showed no emotion when the verdict was read. His family, though, was devastated. They really believed in his innocence. His Aunt Gail told the LA Times, quote, It's a tragic thing. Peggy's gone, and now three children have no mother or father, end quote. The prosecution ended up not seeking the death penalty, so on March 16th, Eric was sentenced to life without parole. When asked if he had anything to say, Eric said, quote, The accident was a horrible tragedy that has befallen both of our families. As much as his in-laws are hurting, my family's also hurting because I didn't commit this crime. I love my wife terribly, and I miss her. And I, there's nothing else I can say, end quote. Following his sentence, Eric's family started a website called freebeckler.com. According to the San Diego source, quote, the website calls the conviction of the Newport Beach man a travesty of justice, challenges the fairness of the court, and asks for donations for an appeal likely to cost $200,000. The website also says that they're looking to generate enough support throughout the state to help present legislation to force the prosecutors and judges to be held responsible for what they considered to be blatant misconduct in the courtroom. The site also contained Eric's version of events and pictures of Eric, Peggy, and the kids. They also offered a $50,000 reward for information about the whereabouts of Peggy, who they say may have escaped to another country to avoid prison time for Medicare fraud. There are some people outside of Eric's family who also believe he's innocent. Some people told OC Weekly that Peggy was controlling and manipulative, and it wouldn't surprise them if she set this whole thing up to escape being convicted of Medicare fraud. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They figured she's living in Morocco and would come back when the seven-year statute of limitations for Medicare fraud was lifted. Uh, She has not shown back up yet, so where do you go with that one? Some people thought Eric couldn't have killed Peggy by himself. One man who used to play volleyball with Eric told OC Weekly, quote, I don't think Eric is smart enough to concoct a plan for an accident to take her life at sea. I think either something happened and he didn't do anything or he had help, end quote. On November 14th, 2003, the Court of Appeals of California confirmed Eric's convictions and sentence. No other appeal attempts have been successful. Eric is currently incarcerated in Avenal State Prison in Avenal, California. As of this recording, he is 54 years old and will spend the rest of his life behind bars. At some point, Eric started another website about his innocence. This website's no longer available, but our researcher Haley was able to find it in the internet archives, and she found some highlights. And it definitely does come across like a dating profile more than a website that is trying to prove his innocence. Um, He had an About Me page that included his name, his hometown, his hobbies of beach volleyball, skiing, movies, going out. Talked about the music he liked, movies. He says that his motto is Carpe Diem. Very original. Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, he wrote on there in his bio, quote, Hi, my name is Eric Beckler, and I'm from Newport Beach in California. I used to be an entrepreneur, but now I'm in prison for a crime I did not commit. As for my private life, I'm currently single and enjoying the extra free time to pursue my hobbies. As if he's made this free time for himself. (laughs) He's in jail. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, I'm an optimist and I'm easily amused by the little things in life. End quote. There's also an Our Children page and uh, it said, quote, Peggy and I plan for five children. 
Peggy was a wonderful, loving mother to our three young children. End quote. So he's he's really trying something. to garner sympathy. Yeah, yeah it's I gross. guess so. As of today, Peggy's body is still missing, and if she hadn't been murdered, she would be sixty-two years old. This is a terribly sad story just because of course what happened to Peggy was just so awful and I can't imagine I it always just makes me so sad thinking about spouses killing each other like this and just how that day going out on the water you know Peggy obviously had no idea that her husband was going to kill her that day but right how scary you know to be on the boat with this man just thinking of that you know of him of being on the boat with somebody who is planning to kill you but at the same time is drinking and having snacks with you and having this great day on the water knowing that just in a few hours like they're going to do this terrible thing to you it's just oh my gosh all around it's just crazy it is yeah I I've never heard this story and I I can't believe I haven't but it is it's wild and just all the stuff he did with Tina and I don't know like I just I can't imagine there's like two separate times he absolutely could have killed her you know if the police right. hadn't been called if she hadn't forced him to pull over who knows what he was going to do we know what he is capable of yeah yeah very terrifying mm-hmm. all right Melissa are we gonna move on and do the last thing before we go wait it's not move on now it's turn the page oh okay Yeah, don't get that wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So for last thing before we go, here in Florida with our kids, I know different uh, counties and stuff have different spring breaks, but our kids are in spring break this next week, right? Maybe yours are. Okay. Sorry. I thought (laughs) they both were. Are you in two weeks? Um, So my kids' school has two breaks um, between January and the summer. So we just had a break in February, and we went up to New York to visit my family. And then they actually have another week-long break, but it's not until April. Got it. Okay. So I made this selfishly just about me. Spring break is happening for some people around the world. How about that? That's what I'm going to go with. I do think it's like pretty – like a lot of people around here are having spring break. Okay. We'll go with that. (laughs) So I just (laughs) decided to go through some spring break fun facts. Um, So Mandy, I'm just going to ask you some questions. Some of them are multiple choice. Some of them you just have to fill in the blank. Let's see how you do. Uh, MTV spring break. Was that that a part of your childhood? Do you remember watching that? Yes. Okay. Thank you. It ran between what years? 1986 to 2014, 1992 to 2016, 1990 to 2015. I'm shocked that it lasted into like lasted that late into any of them okay i'm gonna say that it ended in 2014 that's right it started in 1986 though isn't that surprising wow yeah that's crazy i um i guess i i don't know i didn't realize mtv i don't know what i was going to say i i'm surprised by that though i wouldn't think that that would have continued like still been on in 2014 that's crazy me too i mean i think it barely i think that's why it went away um do you know where it was held the first year cancun No, think very obvious. Think something you like. Think a place you go. Daytona. There you go. Daytona Beach. (laughs) Um, So what year did the first – sorry, I'm jumping to this. What t-shirt contest began, allegedly? 1970, 75, 1980. I'm going to say 70. 75. Oh, wow. Uh, Not like – wow, that's so wrong. Um, John McGuire, who owned Pierre's Restaurant and Bar, says he invented the first commercial wet t-shirt contest during spring break. So, Wow. Thanks, you perv. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Mandy, when did spring break begin? Just the idea of spring break, right? The 1930s, 1940s, or back with the Romans and the Greeks? The idea of a spring break. I'm going to say... I don't know, 1940s. 
Historically, the Romans and Greeks held celebratory gatherings in spring. They would drink to new beginnings, and these festivities lasted several days. Duh. And oh some gosh, people call them so the sense. first spring breaks. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is so easy with the Romans and the Greeks. I'm like, I didn't even try to pick a timeline. And <laughs> you, you were very innocently picking the other ones. Okay, Mandy, spring break gives local nicknames to some towns. What do you think the nickname is during spring break for Fort Lauderdale? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean? Wait, what do you mean nicknames? Um, like um, they like changed the name around, right? So like Orlando. What could Orlando be? Or vodka? Oh, I don't know. Something like that. Oh, Just something stupid. Okay. okay. Um, I don't know. How about Fort Liquordale? <laughs> I've never heard that, but I saw it on so many things that I was oh my like, gosh. this is a real thing, apparently. Wow. Okay. I love Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. I mean, I like I like just visiting. Well, you can I go to Fort Lickerdale this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so a uh, last thing, really. Uh, we mentioned that Daytona was the location of the first MTV spring break. And back in the 80s and 90s was the spring break capital. Do you know what the capital is now? No, it's not Daytona anymore. No, sorry, I mean, that's not shocking. Lost it in the nineties. Yeah, totally, yeah, it's totally not all that. So, where where's number one? Number one is Panama City Beach. Oh, um, yeah, which I accidentally went to one year to accidentally. help my sister. I did. I stayed in a tent across from Club La Vila while everyone's drinking, and I was sick, and I just laid in a tent, which is the most close I've ever been to being murdered, to be quite honest. Right. Um, <laughs> but actually, the interesting thing about that back in two thousand fifteen, Panama City Beach, like. During March and April, you can't have any open containers on the beach. Like, they're trying to get away from being that. So huh. for seven years now, like, literally all spring break, they're like, mm, not here. <laughs> Don't oh, do wow. that. So it's illegal to do that there now. So it's more That's kind of, friendly. I feel like, what happened in Daytona. The locals got tired of it. They didn't want it there anymore. I imagine. And, but, you know, and it's kind of sad. Well, and now Daytona is not really keeping up with, you know, I don't know. They're not advancing, I guess, with – I mean, even with their structures and, like, everything. When you go yeah. down to Daytona, like, everything looks very old and not maintained and, like, there's not a lot of new things going on down there. But the residents really like it that way. They don't want a lot of yeah. – but obviously, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because tourism is very important. Brings so much economy. money in. There's not a lot of money mm-hmm. in Daytona without uh, tourism. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, we ha- they have all, all kinds of events. Bike week. It used to be a mm-hmm. spring break destination and all that. But I feel like, yeah, that's kind of the, – the locals kind of pushed them out. So the spring breakers will find somewhere else to go, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. There's there's always going to be – there's always going to be more places. Yeah. Um, before we go this week, uh, Mandy, um, Criminality, my the other show I co-host with Rebecca, this week we have a story, if you like Vanderpump Rules, it's about Ooh. Randall Emmett. And if you remember during the – you might even remember this. Do you remember when 50 Cent got in a feud online – and somebody called him Fofty, and he yeah. said Fofty. Yeah, that's what the story is about. I mean, it's about other things, but like that's truly the gem of the story. So oh, yeah. if you wanted to check it out, that's <laughs> what I want to check out. Awesome. All right, that sounds great. Well, we will be back next week, same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.